young Christians, little theologians, as well as older Christians and bigger theologians, what is your favorite mask? Not that mask, right? There was a day when we said mask and we thought first costumes, not face mask. What's your favorite costume mask? Like something you've worn before on Halloween or to a costume party, what's your favorite mask? Is it a a superhero mask like Spider-Man or Batman or Paw Patrol or even PJ masks? Is it a monster, Frankenstein, a vampire, a werewolf? Is it an animal, a cat, a dog, or a bird? Our biggest boy, Jed, loved, loved wearing masks. He would wear, for the first, from three to six, pretty much everywhere he went, every day that he went there, he wore either a mask or a cape, and often both. He loved to wear costumes, and that meant everyone else wore costumes. So Jaden and Blakely and Judson all would wear costumes because big boy wore costumes. What's your favorite? His was Batman. Mine... Shocker, maybe it'll come up on the screen. Joel, are you awake back there? That's mine. My favorite mask, of course, is a rooster mask and a rooster costume. That's me. I love to be repping the rooster, and it's my favorite mask. What is yours? Today, I want you to draw me a picture of your favorite mask. You can show it to me after the sermon and tell me when and why you like to wear it. Now, superheroes, monsters, and animals aren't the only masks. Maybe you've seen masks that are a little bit more realistic, like these masks. They'll pop up on the screen. They seem real, right? That looks like a real old man, and so does that. These are actually masks. There was a study when they asked people which mask, showing these kind of masks, and ask them which, and real faces, and ask them which one was real. And given a lot of time, one in five of the people who looked at these masks couldn't tell the difference. These are like the Mission Impossible mask. I love that Ethan Hunt can be transformed to any person or any villain anytime he wants, even equipped with a little computer chip that goes over his, vo- his vocal box, making him sound like the people he's impersonating. These realistic masks have been used in bank robberies and other crimes because as they get more and more realistic, they're harder and harder to to distinguish. Nowadays, there's something called facial recognition software. It can quickly scan and recognize your face. This software is being used as surveillance all over the world. They can even take your face and put it so cleanly onto someone else's body, making it appear that you were somewhere that you weren't. You can imagine how powerful those type of masks could be. A mask is something normally used for disguise or entertainment, like we want to pretend we are someone else. And so that's why we don the mask. We do it for parties, for trick-or-treating, for plays and performances. We hope that it will trick. The word hypocrite means pretender, one who wears a mask. Mask conceal, mask hide, mask trick. They pretend, and they've been worn for at least 9,000 years. 
One of the most popular shows during pandemic was a Disney Plus show called The Mandalorian. It is set in the Star Wars universe five years after the events of The Return of the Jedi, and it follows a Mandalorian bounty hunter who breaks the codes of his calling and religion to protect a child, Baby Yoda or Grogu, from the wicked Moff Gideon. A Mandalorian was one who lives by a religious code that includes the vital importance of his body armor made from the strongest metal, Beskar, and always, always wearing his mask. A Mandalorian who abides by the creed can never remove the mask-like helmet in the presence of any living creature. And one of the main conflicts driving the show centers around this idea of devotion to the Mandalorian creed, where the true believer never removes the mask. Mando encounters various Mandalorians, those who take off their helmet. And when they do, Mando judges them as not being true to the guild. He views these Mandalorians as imposters unworthy to wear their Beskar. Now, never has there been a more opportune time to talk about mask righteousness. Am I right or am I right? I mean, the mask debate, at least at some level, has been a measure of righteousness depending whose camp you sit in. And even now, it still hangs over us and what people think of us and what we think about people. Are they sheep or patriots, repubs or libs, science believers or deniers? Of course, it's not that clean, but that's what we do. And it isn't just masks that show devotion to our causes or religions, our social media walls, our yards, our cars, our clothes, all become advertisements of our righteousness. Not only those places, but our families, our routines, our traditions, what we allow into our homes and our bodies and what we don't. There is no shortage of ways that we humans attempt to justify ourselves and judge our neighbors. And maybe that's here where we merge into Romans chapter 2. Paul recognizes this tendency in us. Now remember... Paul is unpacking the gospel that he's preaching throughout the Gentile world, the gospel of a resurrected king named Jesus, who by his life, death, and resurrection will undo all the ways of human unrighteousness, all the ways we break the world. And there's so many ways. Right? Paul articulates that we break the world through wrongdoing and lying, through undoing what God has created good. We bring chaos and disorder into the places where God has created order and called it good. We exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship the creature instead of God the creator. And when we're confronted with these realities, we double down and suppress that truth, plugging our ears, closing our eyes, and saying, no, this thing that we have made and that now we worship, this is good, this is true, this is beautiful. And Paul says God's wrath is simply to let us keep thinking that and doing that. 
And so you can imagine coming to the end of this diatribe against unrighteousness and sitting there and going, man, those people that do those shameless acts, they deserve what's coming to them. It's like Paul anticipates how we are, right? We are people who sit in sermons and think, man, I sure hope my husband is listening to this, or my kids, or my friends. I should share this sermon with Karen or Ken. We are religious people, and we can sometimes be the worst about this stuff. Like, we like to justify ourselves. How, by our ability to do good, look good, play the part. We say, bless his heart, when we see something doing something that's embarrassing. We gasp at the shameful, thinking we would never do that. We ask people for their prayer requests to prod for new things to feel good about ourselves about. We compare and we measure who's in and who's out by boundary markers. We create extra biblical type of things that say this is a true follower and this is not. They never take off their helmet-like mask. And Paul says humans don't just break the world like they do at the end of Romans 1. We also break the world by wearing a mask of human righteousness and pretending that this is, in fact, God's standard of righteousness. Now, let me say that again. We, too, religious people, break the world by wearing a mask of our own human righteousness, pretending that this will, in fact, meet God's standard of righteousness. We do this in the practice of our faith, our religion. Mando is pure Mandalorian, worthy of the Beskar he wears. All these other are frauds. I am worthy of God's love and affection because I go to church, because I practice the sacraments, because I read my Bible, because I don't do what they do. You see, the Jews had the law. They were God's special, revered people. They were in covenant with him. They had his promises. They were chosen. They knew him as Yahweh, a special, private, covenantal name. They had rites and traditions that brought to them forgiveness of sin, that kept them pure from others, that made them righteous. And this was the way, by the way, that they intended to remake the world. They would keep God's law, and nations would flock to their ways because they would be holy and just. In other words, they think that somehow they can rectify what is broken in the world through their devotion and their faith. That they can maintain their position inside the covenant, being people of the promise, performing the law and the traditions. The Roman church started with these Jews who had encountered the risen Jesus or the gospel preached by men and women who encountered Jesus. But there was conflict early on around these traditions and the keeping of the law. And every church started by Paul. Was the way of Jesus keeping the former traditions of Israel? Was circumcision the marker of inclusion into the way of Jesus? Or was there something new? Was keeping the law what brought you in and kept you in? Or was it something else? And so, just as Paul dismantles the unrighteousness of the Gentile world, 
he now dismantles the righteousness of the Jewish world. The irreligious, Paul says, are without excuse. And starting here in chapter 2, he says, so are the religious. And here Paul says, God does not regard the mask. We reform people are really good at our righteousness. Our theology is our righteousness that we wear as a mask that makes us think that we are better than others and we stand in judgment over and against them. God does not regard the mask. He does not regard the mask of judgment. Looking at verses 1 and 2, everyone passes judgment on one another. What is it that feels so good about judgment? I think of the Pharisee who goes to the synagogue to pray, and he says, Thank you, God, that I am not like these other sinners. Like we judge and put on the mask of judgment as our righteousness thinking because it makes us feel better about ourselves. We group up and judge another group because our righteousness increases. That is the mask of judgment. God does not regard the mask. This ties into the next mask, the mask of comparison. We compare. Why do we compare? Because we want to measure up. We want to know the class rankings. We want to know who's the most successful among us. We want to know who are the best parents and the best kids and the best Jesus lovers. And here's the thing. When we don't measure up by comparison, we bow out. We just don't play. We take our ball and go home. Right now, my five-year-old Deke feels judgment and comparison, even though he's never played like sports and really only spends most of his time with his siblings or his cousin Gracie, his best friend. But when he can't do something, he feels comparison innately. He judges himself and he quits. So he'll try to do one thing, and when he can't do it, he quits. And he just says, I'm not going to do this anymore. I can't do it. It's what we do. We compare as long as we're better than another, or better than that group, or better than average. But if we can't compare there, we remove ourselves, rebelling against the standards, saying the standard is rigged, or we know it isn't rigged, but we can't wet measure up, so let's just start a new standard. What's funny is that the different sect of the Mandalorians all just alter the code a little bit to make for different standards. And all cults are the same, right? A cult is a realistic-ish sort of mask of the original, something that looks enough like the real thing that it compares in some ways, but it's changed just enough that it now becomes a new thing. Oh, I love the mask of the new thing. Like when I was in my Christian high school, I found most of my classmates to be really religious, hypocritical, and annoying, which is what I called them in comparison to myself. I was the true one, the one who was real, because I didn't play the religious game. My religion was not them. I was not them was my religion. 
And this is what the mask of comparison does. I am not them. Living for the approval in some self-creation of righteousness that at the end of days says, I'm better than you because I actually am what I am. Or because I've bowed out and chosen to do my own thing, which makes me better than you. God does not regard the mask. And this leads to the mask of self-righteous hypocrisy. Paul hints at this in verses 3 and 8. You who condemn and practice the same things as those who do. You who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness. It hovers over the entirety of chapter 2. Judgment and comparison lead to the mask of self-righteousness. Like when Danette and I get into a fight, I love to make judgments. And all my judgments end with me being better than her and she being worse than me. It feels so good to be right. It feels so good to be self-righteous. The anger and the justification just pulses through us. Go online, find a group that you're most likely to judge, picture them in your mind, why are you more right than them, and feel it. It feels good. And this leads to the mask of favoritism. In verses 4 and 11, Paul says, the Jew listens to this chapter 1 and says, I'm glad I'm not like these other sinners. Paul anticipates this and launches into the unrighteousness of their righteousness. Just because you are Jewish, don't presume that you are justified. Just because you have the law and the prophets and the word, don't think that you are good. Just because you think you are God's favorite, don't assume that you are. My kids are always lining up to be our favorites. They all have opinions about who, their, who the favorite is, and most days, all of them think it isn't them. But of course, one or two of them actually envision that they are. And the temptation is, when you think you are the favorite, is to hedge your bets against being the favorite. Let's test this thing out, and then maybe something confirms it. You don't get as harsh a punishment as your siblings. You get better rewards than your siblings. Everyone, thinks, uh, everyone seems more chipper when you're around. My stuff doesn't stink. I'm good. I didn't cu get caught doing this. I probably won't get caught doing that. And this is where presumption sets in. The Jew is presuming that they are good because of their ethnicity, because of their status, because they have the law. And Paul dismantles this and says there are Gentiles who are better at keeping the law than you, and they don't even have it. So what do you do then? Now, we Christians might feel the same thing, by the way, when we meet another person who is more loving towards others, more generous than we are, more free with their time and their energy, just an overall better person, but they don't know God. And we meet them, and we watch them, and we see them, and it cuts us to the quick. We know they are more righteous than us. And so then we say, but at least I have Jesus. Again, it is what we do. We find all sorts of ways to turn ourselves into the favorite, into the hero of the story, even when we know we aren't. And when we've suffered loss, and this is a, 
a crucial thing in our day, even when we've suffered loss or been victims of harsh injustices, we find ways to make our victimhood our righteousness. We want people to know what we suffered so we might get a little more praise, be graded on some kind of curve, and no doubt these sufferings are very great. The trauma of them is incredibly full of suffering, and going through them should procure us some level of honor or curved grade. But what Paul is unmasking for us is all the ways in our righteousness we try to be more righteous. And what he doesn't do here, what you must see here, is he doesn't grade on a curve. Don't miss this. God does not regard the mask. We are tempted to think, well, yeah, I'm good enough. I'm not good enough, and neither are you, and neither is she. So God, he'll just grade on the curve. But Paul doesn't say that. He says, God renders to each of us according to our works. God judges not what we say or hear, but what we do. God honors those who obey the truth and do it while seeking glory, honor, immortality with eternal life. God does not regard our mask. All human righteousness ends where? Judgment. All our mask-wearing righteousness, all the righteousness we can produce, the mask that we put on in our righteousness to produce it and show it ends in judgment. Verse 3, all will be judged, Paul says, according to their judgments. By the very judgments we've made, we will all be judged. Recall just this past week, what sorts of judgments did you make about the way people looked acted, thought, gauge your level of disgust of your most hated and loved comparisons. I love the movie Mean Girls. It's a movie about judgment and where judgment always ends with everyone being judged. Regina George is the head of the plastics and she and her other plastic crew judge everyone who's not a plastic. Caddy Heron moves to the school with her parents after serving in the Peace Corps in Africa, and she judges the plastics with her friends Janice and Damien. Katie infiltrates the plastics to take Regina George down, but ends up becoming the new queen bee, and in the end, through the burn book, where all their judgments are laid bare and seen with pictures, she gets judged by the very same judgments and becomes the outcast, while Regina becomes the victim of getting hit by a bus, and in her victim becomes the new sort of queen bee. That is our world. And what God says, this is what judgment does. It undoes God's world and undoes us. And God says those who judged will be judged by their judgments. They'll be judged by their comparisons. The curve you grade on, the standards you required, will be the standards you are judged by. What are your criticisms against the other side? You will be held to the same standards when you can't meet that standard. 
There is no creating a new group, and even being a victim won't remove you to a new standard because whatever standard you create becomes the standard by which you are judged. And all will be judged according to their presumptions or assumptions. Verse 4, if you think you are good because you are the favorite, Paul says, think again. Don't presume upon God's kindness. I can do this all the time. I'm good. I'm a pastor. I do ministry. I lead this deal. We will all be judged for thinking this is how God works. Like thinking God shows partiality. He does not. All will be judged for their hard hearts. Verse 5, like when you hear these things, even now as you hear them, what do you do? I have a bad habit that when someone informs me or challenges me, I bow up. It's the machismo culture that I deal with here in New Mexico that we all deal with. Last week when I met with my pastor's group, one of my friends in my group asked me, do you like that people sometimes feel afraid of you? And I could... I tried to hide a smile. I was found out because I do. The machismo runs deep, bros. And this hard-heartedness ends, according to Paul, in storing up wrath for Judgment Day. It's the interest rate that keeps multiplying. The more we harden our hearts, the more God turns us over to the hardening of our hearts and the more wrath that gets stored up. I hope you hear this and you go, the New Testament tells us, and Paul will echo it, and it's one of the themes of this letter, what do we do with the Jews as their status chosen by God, especially when the Jews harden their heart to the Messiah being Jesus. They come from a long line of people who harden their hearts. They did it in the wilderness. They did it in the promised land. And they now do it under the Roman rule back in the land. And they're doing it with Christ, the crucified with Messiah. And in their presumptuous thinking, they're thinking they're better than the Gentiles who do all the bad things. And Paul is saying they are hard-hearted because they haven't seen their need to repent of their good deeds and standing. They are the older brother in the prodigal son story. They are alienated from God in their goodness. Their goodness makes them think they are better than all the younger brothers out there. Their goodness makes them think they are more dutiful, a better son, a better daughter to the father. And they have all these good, dutiful deeds to prove it. But the problem is they want the father dead and they want his inheritance just as much as the younger brother. And Paul is saying... You religious people, you older brothers, you people who have had the law, you have presumed upon it, you need to repent of your good deeds, your heart motivations. You need to see that, that you are just as needy as someone who's outside there doing all the bad things. And this is the rub. They harden their hearts to their own neediness. Few things sum up our current entrenched cultural moment than this. We're all so entrenched in our echo chambers of our making and thinking that we are better, and God says, you will be judged for your hard hearts. And then Paul, just to make sure you don't 
miss out on judgment. All will be judged according to their works, verse 6. There is no curve. Like, I don't know if you remember, like, being in school and hoping and praying that the professor might curve that grade. In God's economy, there is no curve. He says, to those who seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who obey unrighteousness, they will receive wrath, fury, distress, tribulation. The Jew first and then the Greek. The priority here is the same way the promises have come. First through the Jew and then the Greek and then to the rest of the world. Judgment starts with the Jew and then the Greek and the rest of the world. But all will be judged according to the law, either the law written on their hearts or the law written, revealed by God on tablets of stone. And it is the doers of the law who will be justified. Let's go. Right, that'd be bad news. What does that leave us? I mean, if you could just abide by your judgments... If you could just get by with your assumptions, if you could just not harden your hearts, if you could just seek that glory and honor immortality in your doing of good deeds, if you could just do the law, if you could just listen to your conscience. But we can't. And even if we could, our heart motivations betray us. So what do we do? Karl Barth, the German theologian, says this about this text. The possibility of God can never be embodied in one form of human righteousness, which may be compared and contrasted with other forms of human righteousness or unrighteousness. The believer who does good works can never behave as though this work of his were his possession to be played off against another's lack of possession. In other words, God does not regard the mask. Like, you can't muster up the righteousness required to meet the law. You just can't do the good things that are required of you. You can't do it. There's no human righteousness that starts and ends with us that can ever produce and make us into doers. Of righteousness. Now, we, we might do some things well. We might do it occasionally. We might somehow do one good thing, and when we do it, what do we do? We pat ourselves immediately on the back. And like that episode of Friends where Phoebe and Joey argue about whether there's ever a truly good deed that's never done with self-interest, we quickly realize just how impossible it really is. And so we are without excuse. Just like the irreligious, by the way, of verses 18 to 32, Paul says, we too are without excuse. We are not any better. Where do we get righteous? The distinction is doing the law, and we don't do the law. We hear it. The voice of it thunders over us. We want to do it. We feel guilted to do it, but we can't do it. 
And the future, the word here says, the doers of the law shall be declared righteous, future tense. It's not just declared righteous in the moment. If they do the law, they will be declared righteous in the eschaton, what is to come. This is to declare that any vestige, any glimmer, any shiver, shiny little nugget of human righteousness, that all mask wearing is for naught. It's only in our complete renunciation of our own righteousness, surrendering it to God, where such doers are disclosed by the law and where such faith is discovered by revelation, there is Christ, the end of the law unto righteousness to everyone who believes. You see, friends, the new day that is dawned is the resurrection of Jesus. Christ has been raised. And because he's been raised, he ushers in a day of transformation where all time is compressed into eternity. And through Jesus, men are judged by God. All our secrets, Paul says, are laid bare. Our masks are taken off. God, in other words, answers the problem. He sets all men under one threat and one promise. And in this sternness of the gospel of Christ, he brings tenderness and gentleness, power, and liberty. He doesn't loosen the bounds of the law. Instead, he enters in and fulfills them. Jesus is the hope, in other words, according to Paul, of both the irreligious Gentile and the religious Jew. And so he says to us, God does not regard the mask So put on the mask that is Christ. How do you do that? Well, he gives us some hints here. One, heed the forbearing, patient kindness of God. In The Mandalorian, Mando is faced with this choice to save baby Yoda, but it requires him to take off the mask. And in the scene, Mando feels the torment and yet does what he must to save the child. Jesus feels the anguish of Calvary about fully taking on all our sinful flesh, all our judgments, and faces the scrutiny of God on the cross. And in that moment, God supplies to us all that we need through Jesus. He lives the life we should have lived. He dies the death we should have died. He didn't judge his friends or his enemies. He didn't compare himself to the righteousness of the Pharisees. He didn't presume upon the Lord in the temptations of the desert. He didn't throw himself down from the temple. He didn't create bread to satisfy his hunger. He didn't even number himself among the righteous or think that he was too good to suffer for the ungodly. He obeyed the law. He didn't just hear it, but did it. And he obeyed it all the way to the cross. And how do we know that he did this? And how do we know that he wasn't cursed or smitten by God? Well, God raises him from the dead, and that isn't the end. At the end, Christ will be highly exalted above all. The name of Jesus will be the name at which every knee will bow and tongue will confess that he is Lord and King, and judgment will come. And Christ will be the judge, and all things will be judged by Christ. And his righteousness is, and, uh, is not ours. It is, it is in part. Jesus came in the flesh, obeyed in the flesh, but he did so because he was God. He is the only one who could satisfy the law's demands, but both the law written on tablets of stone and the law written on our hearts. And now, through Christ, eternity has entered into our time, and our masks are shown to just be that, mask of human making and unrighteousness. 
but the gavel has not been laid down. God is patient, waiting for all to hear and believe, wanting all to lay down these masks for his. And the question this morning is, will we? When you sin, will you lay down your attempts to be your own advocate and don the mask and instead let Christ be your advocate? This is what Richard was talking about in the time of confession. Picture the scene, the courtroom. You've been accused by Satan. You've been accused by your own flesh. You've been accused by your friends. You've been judged by the law. You've been judged guilty by the law that you've created. What will you do? In that moment, will you be your own advocate and say, look what I did. Look at who they are. I am at least not them. And then Satan stands up and accuses you and has all the evidence, a video of you wearing all your masks, making all your judgments, not just the ones you say, but the ones you think. And he emphasizes, there's all the proof I need. I rest my case. And in that moment, you are laid bare. All your secrets are out in the open. All your habits, all your judgments. And then, in your despair, in your undoing, Jesus stands up. He defends your cause, not just your merits, but on the merits of his own life, his suffering and his death, in your sin, as you've sinned, as you've been accused, as it's been true, there's nothing you can do to defend yourself. His strength and merits rise in that moment all the higher. He advocates on our behalf because it's who he is. He cannot bear to leave us alone to fend for ourselves. Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, says, Consider your own life. How do you think about Jesus' attitude toward that dark pocket of your life that only you know? The over-dependence upon alcohol. The lost temper time and time again. The shady business about your finances. The people-pleasing that looks to others like niceness, but which you know to be the fear of man. The entrenched resentment that burst out in behind-the-back accusations, the habitual use of pornography. Consider your own life. Who is Jesus in those moments of spiritual blankness? Not who he is once you conquer that sin, But who is he in the midst of it? The Apostle John says he stands up. He defies all accusers. Satan had the first word, but Christ has the last word. Satan must be speechless after the plea of our advocate. Jesus is our paraclete, our comforting defender, our helper, one who is nearer to us than we know. His heart is such that he stands and he speaks in our defense when we sin, not after we get over it. In that sense, his advocacy is itself our conquering of it. 
It is the riches of his kindness that lead us to repentance. And the application today is to, one, allow Christ to be mystery incorporated. You know that scene where they strip off all the masks and the, the accused says, I would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for you meddling kids. At the end of every episode, the mystery is revealed. Judgment is laid. Allow Christ to rip off all those masks of our own righteousness and instead allow him to put on the mask of Christ. Allow him to be your sure defense and let that free you to stop presuming upon his kindness and let it lead you to be reconciled to God through repenting. Church, we need to repent. And I need to repent to you for all the judgments I made against you that I do. You need to repent of to each other for all the judgments you make of one another. And we all need to take it to Christ, who is our advocate, even as we stammer out that word of judgment against one another. Even as we stammer out the judgment against ourselves in our own hearts, even as we stammer out our judgments against God, Christ stands up and pleads your sure defense. So run to him today and allow his righteousness to be the fuel and the fire of all the good deeds that you might do. Not to pat yourself on the back, but to come clean and own what needs to be owned so you might receive all his righteousness. Let's pray. God, I pray you would help us. For this week, last week, the weeks to come, we are undone by all the ways we fail to meet the standard. Thank God for Christ and the riches of his kindness that's meant to lead us to repentance. I pray that we'd see him today and that we'd respond to him today, to his goodness and kindness and mercy towards us, and that we might run to you and repent, and in turn run to our neighbor and own our stuff and love them. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our advocate and friend. Amen.